1968, Andy Warhol made a famous statement that you've probably heard. He said this, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. Warhol was noting the effect of technology and media on culture. You know, screens and cameras are everywhere today. Camera phones and YouTube and Facebook have now made every person a media outlet. In some ways, this is good. No longer are we dependent on a few gatekeepers to decide for us what should and shouldn't be published. You know, today we we live in a, a weird world. You can be a nobody without talent, without character, without credibility, yet you appear on a YouTube video and you're watched by millions. You can start a blog. You don't need to be, have any serious education. You don't need any real knowledge of the subject. Just have a cool website and suddenly your opinion is read by thousands. It's never been truer. Everyone gets his 15 minutes of fame. In a culture proliferated by media, it doesn't take much to get attention, to attract the limelight. But don't mistake celebrity for influence. Fame is not influence. Stardom and notoriety and buzz aren't influence. My life has been impacted and shaped by people who will never be famous. Here's an illustration for you. The Tour Championship is professional golf Super Bowl. At stake is the FedEx Cup and a $10 million payoff. The Tour Championship is played at East Lake Country Club over here in Atlanta. Now, my son Nick is a turf grass management major at UGA. That means that he wants to be a golf course superintendent when he grows up. So he thought it would be a feather in his cap, you know, an old mark on the resume, to volunteer as a groundskeeper at Eastlake during this year's tournament. So that Saturday morning, Nick was up at 4 a.m. He was mowing greens over at Eastlake. And when I called him later in the day to ask him how it went, he told me this, Dad, I'm on TV. When Tiger Woods gets to the number four tee box, look to the side and you'll see me in a blue shirt. Well, guess where I was that afternoon? I was in front of the television, not to watch Tiger Woods, but to watch my boy on television. And when Tiger got to the third green, I started calling everybody in the house, hey, come quick, Nick's on television. Sure enough, as advertised, Tiger steps up to the number four tee box. He takes a few swings. The cameraman pans back. And off to the side of the picture, in a blue shirt, stands Nick Adams. I was amazed. Now, I got a widescreen TV now, okay? (laughs) And Nick was really, really far away from Tiger. In fact, Nick was way over on the edge of the screen. But, But guess what? Even though Tiger hits this magnificent 300-yard shot right down the center of the fairway, for 10 seconds, every eye in our house wasn't on Tiger. It was on the guy in the blue shirt way off on the side of the screen. In fact, I probably replayed those 10 seconds about 20 times before the day was over. In retrospect, Nick's 10 seconds is a commentary on our times. 
You see, by any objective criteria, the noteworthy subject on the TV screen was Tiger's tee shot. Not the guy in the blue shirt on the edge of the screen. If you love golf, or if you admire talent, or if you want help with your swing, or if you enjoy the drama of tournament golf, or if you care about a $10 million outcome, the person of influence that day was Tiger Woods. But I was focused on my son. Nick was on TV because he got up early that morning and mowed a few greens and hung out afterwards and then wiggled his way into a camera angle. Tiger was on television by virtue of a year's worth of talent and achievement. But when Tiger hit that 300-yard drive, nobody in my house cared. All eyes were on Nick. And this is the difference between celebrity and influence. For 10 seconds, Nick was the celebrity, at least in our house. He had stumbled into the spotlight. He was just at the right place at the right time. You see, a celebrity attracts attention not through worth and value, but through some oddity or some outrage or through some flamboyant behavior. Media fuels celebrity. Yet influence is something that you earn. In golf, it's Tiger Woods on the practice range. In life, it's the person who practices integrity and shows character in the midst of adversity. It's the person whose life bears the marks of wisdom and whose conduct has been tried and tested as gold. You see, you gain celebrity just by stumbling into the limelight, but you gain influence by what you do off stage, away from the spotlight. A person of influence is measured over time. Their faithfulness is observed and and noted. Their dedication deserves to be modeled. We glean lessons from their wisdom. Sadly, our world today is dominated by the cult of celebrity. We're fascinated with famous people rather than people of influence. We follow the lives of people who are famous for no other reason than they're famous. The Paris Hiltons and the Kim Kardashians and the, oh, the John and Kates. Hey, instead, we should be learning from folks who have endured tough times and made significant accomplishments and shown real commitment in their lives. And not only should we be gleaning from people of influence, I hope by now you want to become an influential person. We're in a series of Bible studies that we've entitled, How to Be a Person of Influence. And over the last eight weeks, we've been studying through the book of Joshua, and we've listed characteristics, habits of influential people. They make preparation and seize opportunities and overcome limitations, and they settle their allegiances, and they face their foes, and they admit failures, and keep promises, and finish tasks. And we've got two more characteristics. Next week, we'll see that people of influence issue challenges, and today we want to talk about how they share success. You see, Joshua was a success. If you Google the top 10 military geniuses of all time, you'll come up with a whole smorgasbord of famous names. From Hannibal, the Carthaginian who marched elephants over the Alps to attack the city of Rome, to the Mongol, Genghis Khan, who conquered China, to Patton, 
whose U.S. forces dominated the Germans in North Africa. I mean, history is full of military geniuses that led their armies to victory. In fact, the nation Israel has its share of famous commanders. David and Deborah in history. Moshe Diane and Ariel Sharon in recent times. But the most successful commander by far, Israeli, anyone for that matter, is an Israeli general by the name of Joshua ben Nun, the son of Nun. Some scholars believe Joshua was trained in the Egyptian army, that he served a hitch fighting for his captors. He later fought under the leadership of Moses. Understand, Joshua took a band of ex-slaves, molded them into a disciplined army, and crossed a natural boundary, the Jordan River. Then, over difficult terrain, his army defeated a series of heavily fortified city-states. In General Joshua's career, he suffered just one defeat. The initial battle at Ai was the sole blemish on his record, and it was caused by the rebellion of a man named Achan. Every other battle Joshua fought, he ended in triumph. You know, today, modern Jews still love and admire the general. 3,500 years after his death, the son of Nun is still a person of influence in the land of Israel. Each year, thousands of Jews make pilgrimage to an Arab village near Nablus. It's called Timnat Harez. Their destination is the tomb of Joshua. The Israeli army is dispatched in advance. They secure the area and they provide protection to the pilgrims who flock to Joshua's tomb to pray. In fact, not just among the Israeli military, but in military colleges all over the world, the battles recorded in the book of Joshua are scrutinized and studied. To this day, Joshua is held up as an example of military genius. Did you know that several American Civil War generals credited Joshua with inspiration? Over the last 60 years in their conflicts with the Arabs, Israeli generals have referenced the tactics of Joshua, particularly his skillful use of the lay of the land. His strategies have helped thwart modern-day Arab invasions. In almost every battle Joshua fought, his forces were outnumbered, outskilled, and outequipped. But the speed and the stealth and the surprise that he relied on ended up in victory. Joshua was the originator of what's called the preemptive strike. Rarely did he wait on the enemy to attack him. Joshua always struck first at Ai, at Beth Horon, at Hazor. He also liked to employ the element of surprise. Remember at Beth Horon, Joshua marched his army through the night to launch an unexpected assault. Joshua's deployment of the divide and conquer strategy is still a subject in military textbooks today. After Joshua conquered Jericho, you remember his army sliced through the center of Canaan, effectively cutting off the north from the south. Once divided, he could topple his enemies more successfully. And here's my point. There has never been a more decorated and successful general than Joshua. And yet, as we'll see this morning, Joshua shares his success. Our text here in chapter 11 sums up his conquest. We'll begin reading here in verse 16. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south. The word actually is the Negev. It's the arid region west of the, sea of, of the Dead Sea. All the land of Goshen. This was land down near Egypt. The lowland in the Jordan plain. The banks east and west of the Jordan River. 
the mountains of Israel and its lowlands. Here he mentions the central highlands and then the, uh, the coastal plain falling off toward the Mediterranean. From Mount Halak in the ascent to Seir, these were both sites down south of the Dead Sea, all the way up, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. This was the extreme north. So get the picture. From the north to the south, Joshua captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua's flag flew over all the land of Canaan. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. We read about them back in chapter 9. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Don't forget who these people were who fought Joshua and Israel. These were history's biggest losers. In the days of Noah, the human race became so vile and so violent that God knew that he would need to destroy civilization. For they were creating a society so entrenched with evil that the prospects of any recovery at all would be grim. You remember what God did. He flooded the earth with water and he started over with Noah's family. And yet the Canaanites were not far behind the wicked men in Noah's day. These men that Joshua destroyed, they had contaminated their culture with idolatry and with the occult. Warped and perverted sexual practices were destroying the fabric of of humanity. You see, 40 years earlier, you remember the story, the spies that Moses sent into the land, they reported giants in the land, or the Hebrew term, Anakim, the Anakim in the land of Canaan. That term, Anakim, denotes a level of depravity that has existed in just a few places in a few times in the history of mankind. Back before the flood, Genesis chapter 6 There were told of an evil that grieved God to the point where he thought it necessary to clean house and start over. What could have possibly prompted such actions from a loving God? Well, there in Genesis we're told the sons of God, which can be another name for angels, they were engaging sexually with human women. Demons were polluting the human gene pool. People familiar today with the dark secrets of the occult, they say the highest form of demon worship is sex with a demon. The offspring is called a moon child. These were Canaan's giants. And this was probably the source, the historical source of a theme that's been common in other cultures, Greek mythology. Throughout Greek mythology, you have the gods coming down and having sex with humans and siring mutant offspring. It's interesting, even in modern times, what the Bible says occurred before the flood and even occurred in the land of Canaan in Joshua's day has become a Hollywood theme. The 1968 movie, Rosemary's Baby, was about this theme, a moon child. More recently, in the movie, Michael, John Travolta, he plays a lust-filled fallen angel or demon whose main desire is to hit on beautiful women. Apparently, this kind of perversion was occurring in Canaan. And the result was a freakish race 
of humanoids, half human, half perversion. Evidently, Barry Bonds isn't the first giant who had his body chemistry contaminated. The giants in Canaan were on demonic steroids. And this is why God dealt so sternly. God commanded Joshua to take severe precautions. His conquered foes were shown no mercy. They were, quote, utterly destroyed. It was an extreme remedy for an extreme problem. Now, verse 21 tells us, And at that time, Joshua came and he cut off the Anakim from the mountains. Apparently, these giants were actually dwelling in the mountain regions. Joshua drove them out from Hebron, from Debir, from Aneb, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. And later, you'll remember, a young boy named David confronts a giant from Gath by the name of Goliath. One of these Anakim. And in the end of chapter 21, at the end of chapter 21... Joshua writes of his successes. And I want you to listen to Joshua's analysis of what we've just read. Chapter 21, verse 43, I'll put it on the big screen, says this. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. What a wonderful summation there. And to whom does Joshua credit his success? Hey, the Lord gave Israel the land. The Lord gave Israel rest all around. The Lord delivered all their enemies. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken. Obviously, in Joshua's mind, God was responsible for his incredible success. In fact, when you read the book of Joshua, and when you study his triumphs, you see a blending of God's intervention and man's obedience. I mean, God acts often in significant, supernatural ways. In chapter 10, we read last time, he altered the sun's rotation to give Joshua more daylight. He pummeled the enemy with hailstones. How this happened, we don't know. Perhaps God grabbed an aimless comet and steered its direct trajectory through the Canaanite sky. We don't know. Isaiah 28 refers to God's actions in Beth Horon as an awesome work. As an unusual act. But you know Joshua also. His army played a part in these battles. They would march. And they would fight. And they would follow orders. And and you know this is still how a relationship with God works. We are called to be faithful. We're called to trust and to obey God. Then in the midst of an obedient faith. God steps in to do awesome works. And unusual acts. You know, here's what I learned from the book of Joshua. Our relationship with God is a dance between common faith and uncommon miracles. There's nothing supernatural about marching around Jericho. I mean, it was grunt work. This was probably tiresome and embarrassing and made no sense. 
but the miracle would have never come and the walls would have never fallen down if they hadn't put one foot in front of the other. God performed this colossal miracle at Beth Horon, but there would have been no victory had the army not marched through the night to arrive on time. You see, the miraculous and the mundane sing a duet in this book, just as they do in your life and as they do in my life. Christianity is a combination of God's miracle and our march. Now notice verse 23. It closes the first half of the book, and it introduces the second half, and it leads into what I want to talk about this morning. We're told, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes Then the land rested from war. Now it's clear. Joshua received the land from God. It was God who won the victories. Now the rest of the book describes how Joshua divides the land among the 12 tribes. Here's what happens. Joshua lays down his sword and his trumpet. And now he picks up a transit and a range rod. He goes from being a military general to a real estate surveyor. And as you read on in the book, chapters 19 to 22, they sound like a legal description of a piece of property. Now, unless you're a real estate attorney, you might not get excited reading straight through those chapters. But if you were an Israeli living in Joshua's day, nothing would have thrilled you more than to read of how God had set aside those lands for you. You were being given a stake in the new land. You see, for 40 years, you and your family, you've been nomads. You you buried your parents in the hot desert sands. A windstorm blew away any trace of their graves. You've never had a piece of terra firma to call your own. I mean, a place to pour a foundation or to dig a post or or, or to dig a hole in the ground for a tomato plant. But, But now you're being given an opportunity to settle down in a beautiful land, a prosperous land. A land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to learn how to rob bees and milk cows and sow seeds and pick fruit and pray for rain. To put in modern terms, the Israelis will finally experience the joys of home ownership. Joshua is going to dole out to each tribe a place that they can call their own. And the next few chapters are the plats for their plots. Here's what Joshua does. The old general knows that the battles have been won by God. The reason he's been victorious is because God has blessed him. The reason he has accumulated this land is because of God's intervention. These battles were fought and won by God. It's not Joshua's land. It's God's land. But now God wants Joshua to distribute the land among his people. And here is a habit of an influential person. He or she shares their success. They win battles. They accumulate land. But they don't hoard it. They turn around and they share it with the people around them. I bet you would like to work for Kingston Technology Corporation. I think I would. Kingston is the world's largest manufacturer of computer memory tools. In 1996... Kingston's owners, David's son and John II, sold 80% of their company for $1.5 
billion dollars. At Christmas that year, they decided to share some of their success with their employees. A hundred million dollars worth of success. They divided their windfall among all of their workers so that the average 1996 Christmas bonus at Kingston Technology was right around $75,000 per employee. Now that's a little bit more exciting than a fruitcake, don't you think? <laughs> David's son, he explained the owner's decision. He said, to share our success with everybody is the most joy that we can have. You mean you didn't do it for a tax break? Joy, did you say? You did it for joy? You see, people of influence, they take great joy in sharing the rewards of their success with the people around them. This is a motivation. You know, there are people in life who are driven by to succeed. They're driven to achieve. But, but they're not people of influence. They're about affluence, not influence. You see, the words affluence and influence, they sound a lot alike, don't they? But, but they're two totally different terms. Affluence is supply. Influence is sway. Affluence flows to or toward a person. Influence flows from a person. God wants us to be successful, but not for affluence's sake. He wants us to have influence. Success should flow not just toward us, but also from us. Some commodities in life are measured by their flow, not their volume. In fact, read your electric bill when you get home. Walton EMC or Georgia Power, they don't charge you for the amount of electricity that you bought and stored. I mean, electricity is not a commodity that you accumulate. Unlike, a gasoline, unlike gasoline you put in your car, you don't have an electricity tank outside your house. You're charged for what flows through your house. They call them the kilowatt hours. Well, at the judgment seat of Christ, this is how you and I are going to be measured. By flow, not volume. God won't look at our successes and our achievements and the rewards that we've been able to accumulate. He'll want to know how much of what we accomplished and accumulated flowed through us to others. We'll be measured by flow, not by volume. How, how many of you have a hamster at home? How many of you have a hamster? Anybody? So a few of you have a hamster. Do you know that the word hamster means to hoard? That's what it means. The word hamster means to hoard. Your cute little cuddly furry friend is by nature a hoarder. He spends all his time gathering as much food as possible without any consideration as to when he has enough supply. He's just about hoarding. I, I read where a farmyard hamster had stockpiled 300 pounds of grain. I mean, in three lifetimes, he could never deplete his stash. And yet he's still gathered. That's what he's about, gathering. You see, a hamster has elastic facial skin that, believe it or not, can stretch an inch away from its body without any discomfort at all. Ham hamsters eat until they swell to grotesque proportions. And I know humans who act like hamsters. 
They have a hamster spirit. They hoard rather than share. Do you share your successes by recognizing the contributions of folks who've helped you? By allowing people to take part in opportunities that come your way? By sharing, not hoarding your talent and your know-how? By giving of the financial rewards of your success? Hospitality and mentoring others and giving and counseling and serving and just befriending cause your success to flow from you to other people. And that's how we're going to be measured. A person of influence is like the ocean tide. When the tide rolls in, it influences every other ship in the harbor. The tide doesn't rise alone. It lifts the level of every other vessel with it. It elevates others. Let me ask you, how does your life bump up the people around you? Do you have an elevating effect? Or are you causing other people to sink? Two invisible for How many NASCAR fans in, in the crowd? NAS- yeah, a few. Probably more than a few. Two invisible forces influence the sport of NASCAR. You don't see them, but they're there. Engineers try to reduce what's called drag on the car. Drag is the wind resistance that slows the car down. This is why sleek, streamlined bodies allow the car to travel faster. The the other force is called draft. You know, a car that rides the bumper of another car, you know, it, it reduces its wind resistance on the trailing car. Actually, a pocket of low pressure forms behind the lead car that acts like a vacuum, and it sucks the trail car forward and faster. In fact, a driver can use the draft to whip his car around the car in front of him and take the lead. And here's my question to you. What kind of invisible force does your life produce? Do you increase drag on the people around you? Or do you provide others with draft? Do other people play off you to get ahead in life? You know, in my opinion, Larry Bird was the greatest basketball player to ever lace on a pair of sneakers. But not because he was a great, the best shooter or the best defender or the best rebounder or the best leaper. I'm not sure the hick from French Lick could even touch the rim. But Bird made everybody else on his team better. You see, he provided his teammates with draft. He was the tide that raised the level of every other person in a Celtic jersey. The Bird was no hamster. Larry Bird was a sharer, not a hoarder. And what about you? Do you make the people around you better? Does your success inspire others or does it make them envious? Do you rub off on other people or do you rub them the wrong way? You know, many of history's generals, they were really just self-promoters. They used their troops to enhance their own glory. Their victories inflated their own ego rather than elevated the people around them. But not Joshua. Oh, no. Notice the book spends seven chapters on Joshua's victories, but then nine chapters 
on how he divvies up the land and its spoils to the people who fought with him. In other words, Joshua shared his success. He made life better for the people around him. And here's another general who's done much the same. In fact, we've already met him in this book. Joshua met him back in chapter 5, just outside of Jericho. The commander of the Lord's army met Joshua just before he began his conquest of the land. I'm talking about General Jesus. Second person of the Godhead, king of heaven and earth, rider, warrior on the white horse, slayer of his enemies, ruler in righteousness, General Jesus, so mighty in battle. Yet for whom does he fight? With whom does he intend to share his spoils for all eternity? The answer, his bride, the church, you and me. The New Testament is really clear. When we embrace Jesus as our general and when we pledge allegiance to his command, we become entitled to a portion in all that he is and in all that he's accomplished. Christ is in us, but also we are in Christ. On the cross, General Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death. And now through his spirit, he shares with us his successes. He empowers us to victory. Jesus has even staked us a claim in a new land, in in a better land. He told his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for us. That means that when he comes again, or when we go to be with him in heaven, we're going to be divvied up a plot in paradise. We're going to have a place in the the oasis called heaven. You know, Jesus is the perfect storm. When he comes again to this earth, he'll be a cat five hurricane. Unlike any storm you've ever seen, he is sure to sink every wayward vessel that sails outside his harbor And under a foreign flag, Jesus is going to wipe them out. But this perfect storm will also become the ultimate tide for all the ships that rest in his harbor. If you fly under his flag, if you rest in his harbor, Jesus becomes the rising tide that swells to fill the whole world and will elevate us beyond our wildest imaginations. I want to close this morning at the end of chapter 19. I'm going to put the verse on the big screen. But I love this passage. Go back and read it thoroughly. It's one of the most graceful and beautiful and challenging moments in Scripture. Verse 49 of chapter 19 tells us, When they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, The children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua ben Nun, the son of Nun. Notice, when did they give Joshua his share? After everyone else had been allocated their parcel. Notice Joshua didn't take his cut first. He didn't assume first pick in the draft. He didn't think that just because he was the general, he deserved special privilege. Hey. Joshua goes last. He's resigned himself to just take the leftovers. Oh, Joshua, he could have chosen a tropical overlook on the Mediterranean. He could have chosen a picturesque little country cottage up in the Galilee. He could have 
chosen a cool mountain retreat in the Golan under Mount Hermon. But no, Joshua chose the rugged hills of Ephraim. It was a place at the heart of the nation, at the center of the land. Joshua was more concerned about practicality and proximity than he was his own pleasure. You know, here was a man who truly lived his life for others. Even his own successes were a means of glorifying God and bettering the lives of the people around him. You got a wife and kids. You got a husband and parents. You got a few friends, probably. You got a church and some neighbors. You got some coworkers. When Jesus helps you succeed, then why don't you be like Jesus and Joshua and share your success? Don't hoard it. Hey, take joy. Divvy it up to the people around you. Cause their lives to be better because of your success. Hey, you want to know why thousands of Jews flock to Joshua's tomb to this very day? And why Jewish soldiers risk their life to keep them safe? It's because Joshua was a person of influence who shared his success. And he's still influencing people today. He's still invoking in them gratitude. And he's inspiring them to follow in his example. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for the example of Joshua. Lord, we pray that we too could share our success. That we would find the joy that's so abundant when we stop hoarding. And we look at our blessings and our successes as ways to elevate the lives of the people around us. Help us, Lord, to be the rising tide in our, in our world that raises all the other ships. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the joy you've put in our hearts, the love you've put in our lives. We thank you for how you've made us successful, Lord, in so many ways. Help us, Lord, be about sharing that success with others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.